Colossians chapter 2, we continue in our series this morning. We will be looking at verses 11 through 15. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, that is on page 984, page 984. The title of our sermon this morning is Raised with Christ, and our key words for our worshipers and training are buried, death, and baptism. Now, most of us are probably familiar with the ancient myth of the phoenix bird. The myth is one of the magical bird. It was radiant. It was shimmering. It had all kinds of different colors of red and purple and yellow and blue sapphire eyes that that shine like the sun. And the phoenix, it is said, would live for several hundred years, but eventually it builds its own nest and ignites the nest on fire with the clap of its wings and bursting itself into flames and dying. And then after it dies, the bird is gloriously reborn from the ashes to start a, a new long life and then it flies away. Now, this myth is very popular in many different cultures, and all of them are slightly different in how they present the phoenix and its death, but the Greeks were the ones who named the bird. Depictions of the bird have been found on ancient amulets as a, as a symbol of rebirth, as a symbol of immortality. It was associated with the period of flooding of the Nile River, bringing new wealth and, and new fertility to the area where these people lived. Now, the phoenix has been incorporated into many different religions as well, signifying eternal life and the idea of destruction and creation or recreation and fresh beginnings. In fact, because of the theme of death and resurrection with this myth, early Christians saw it as an an, an analogy to Christ's death and resurrection, and the symbol of the phoenix can actually be found on many early Christian tombstones. Today we hear often of the phoenix. It's a very popular symbol in the military. And when there's a great comeback story in sports, a lot of times you'll hear about the the phoenix rising from the ashes. The phoenix rising is actually the name of the MLS soccer team in Arizona. But this motif of the, of the phoenix rising from the ashes of the, de- of the dead is, is a, a, a very popular one in Western tradition because it appeals to something that all of us deeply long for in both the immediate sense of our daily lives, but also, and more importantly, in the eternal sense. It's a symbol of the desperate longing that all of us have in every human heart for every for every chance that we might get when we fall short or when we mess up, that we would have another opportunity. We want to try again. And when we try again, we hope that it's better because it's a fresh, a fresh start, whether it's, it's a game we're playing or it's a, a job that we're doing or it's a relationship we're a part of. When we, when we do things and they don't go the way that we hope them to go and we see our own faults in the midst of it, We want what we were and what we did to die away so that the new opportunity, the new chance, the new life can emerge from the ashes. And so it really is a powerful image. But if we simply relegate this to the idea of myth, it really is nothing more than an image. But for the early Christians, they had it right. 
This isn't just a powerful longing in the heart of every human being. It's a reality that was played out in dramatic and glorious fashion in the physical sense in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reality that is played out spiritually in the life of every person who dies to themselves and is brought into new life with Jesus Christ. When regeneration and and redemption occur, And it happens in the life of every believer every single day when we confess our sins and God, as we have seen, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we continue looking at Paul's letter to the church in Colossae this morning, he's now reminding the church of of the radical nature of new life in Christ. In order that a person can be made new, In order that we can have a whole new life, rising from the ashes, we must first die to our old life. And and Paul will show us that this personal death is only possible because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. So let's read the text together in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. In him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now remember, the occasion for Paul writing this letter to the Colossians is that even though Paul had never been to the church, Paul had never met most of the church, he never planted it or or really worked directly with them, he still had a great concern for all of the churches. He was receiving troubling news about the church in Colossae, about the false teachers of Gnosticism knocking at the door, seeking to infiltrate the body of Christ. And so we saw last week, remember Paul's warning about the plausible men with strong personalities who were steering the church away from the original beliefs that they had heard and that they had believed with the enticing suggestion that maybe there's something better than the gospel alone. They were offering the people the gospel plus some added extras. They were In their minds and in what they were teaching, they were the super spiritual. They were the ones who had a special kind of knowledge. And there were believers in the church who were beginning to believe these false teachers. This is why Paul warned the believers in Colossae not to let themselves be taken captive. Not to let themselves be recruited for an agenda that was less than truly Christian. And remember, we saw last week that Paul went on to make the point that the person who has Christ is complete. And since the whole of God's fullness is found in Jesus, they too can find themselves whole and complete in Christ alone. And so now, Paul goes on to make much more of this very same theme. 
Chapter 1, remember, was all about how Jesus Christ is inexpressibly wonderful in his glorious supremacy and is incomparable to anyone or anything else. He has no rivals. He has no equals. He is both the most remarkable man who has ever lived, and he is absolutely, utterly God to the utmost. It follows, then, to become a Christian to be united by faith to this glorious Savior Savior is an extraordinary privilege that the Christian has. And so we cannot overstate the importance of true conversion. But these false teachers, they they were trying to seize control of the church in Colossae, and they argued that something even greater lay beyond their conversion. Yes, they argued faith in Christ is great and important, But don't you want something more? Don't you want something even greater than what you heard in the gospel? And Paul's response in these verses is to describe conversion in such glowing terms that the very idea that there could be something better than union with the supreme preeminent Christ who created all things and sustains all things is hollow nonsense. And so the first thing that Paul shows us in verses 11 and 12 is that you can only live when you have first truly died. Now, since Paul brings circumcision into this argument at this point, we can safely assume that one of the issues for these false teachers of Gnosticism was very much like what we see with the Judaizers that came to the church in Galatia. Remember, Paul deals extensively with this issue in his letter to the Galatians. Christians who had not been circumcised were being pressured to have the operation. In Galatia, it was because they assumed that to submit to Jewish regulations in addition to faith in Christ, one would be a better Christian, a more faithful Christian, a more righteous individual because of their works. In Colossae, remember the Gnostic idea, was something that there's, there, there's something inherently evil about the physical world. And so the physical aspect of circumcision would supposedly give a greater separation from the evil of the physical world. Well, Paul refers to this in verse 11. He's likely using the language that was being used in Colossae when he says, putting off the body of flesh. It was sort of a consecration ritual that by nature of what it was and certainly how painful it would be, especially for adult males, this was something that would have been considered a real sign of sincerity and faithfulness for the Gnostics. And there really is a tendency within all of us to want to be in the right crowd, isn't there? We all want to fit in. There's even a, there's a pop song about that. I wish that I could be like the cool kids because all the cool kids, they seem to fit in. Well, the new teachers in town were the cool kids and the Colossians were being tempted to do what the cool kids were doing and so they are appealing to the church to go through with these rituals. But Paul is hoping that in writing to them that they will put the brakes on these practices. They are unnecessary. Yes, circumcision was an old covenant practice for Jewish males, but it was no longer a part of what it meant to be in the new covenant. 
Submitting to this practice provided reason for many to have this self-satisfied, smug, self-righteous disposition toward others, looking down their noses at those who had not gone through with the procedure. But Paul reminds them, all of this is very unnecessary. We have Christ. Why was it unnecessary? Why is it good and right and important in the Old Covenant, but not in the New Covenant? Because the circumcision of the flesh was a shadow of the greater reality of the circumcision of the heart. To circumcise the flesh is needlessly redundant. Every Christian, whether ethnically Jewish or Gentile, is circumcised in the heart. The one, as Paul says in verse 11, made without hand. It is the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart of every believer. This was actually promised all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Paul emphasizes this at the end of Romans chapter 2, writing, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul goes to great lengths to show us that the physical act of circumcision doesn't show that someone is more faithful or more spiritual or more Christ-like or more sacrificial. It actually shows someone in the new covenant who doesn't understand the power of the gospel in the death of Christ. Again, Paul dealt with this in his letter to the Galatians. There he wrote in chapter 5 and verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. But notice how he says this happens. The language here that Paul uses is very interesting. He writes, By the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now this is a bit odd because usually circumcision is not a reference to death, but here Paul is clearly referring to Christ's death. So we have something of a metaphor in circumcision of Christ's crucifixion. But the crucifixion was not just a piece of flesh, but the entirety of his physical body. And so, to trace the argument from what we saw last week, the Colossians are united to Christ, the Colossians are walking in Christ, and as such, they spiritually share in the circumcision of Christ that they might receive a circumcision of the heart. In other words, as believers, our sinful nature is cut away and we die to our former self. You see, true life comes through death. We die to the old man. We die to the old woman. And in so doing, we're brought to new life in Christ. Dead to ourselves, alive in Christ. And Paul is emphasizing this by pointing to the ordinance of baptism. We were buried with Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. We spiritually participate with Christ in his death or in Paul's words in his circumcision. 
Peter O'Brien explains this well. He writes this, As the burial of Christ set the seal upon his death, so the Colossians' burial with him in baptism shows that they were truly involved in his death and laid in his grave. It is not as though they simply died like Jesus died or were buried as he was laid in the tomb. The burial proves that a real death has occurred and the old life is now a thing of the past. Whenever we do a baptism, that's something that we explain. As Baptists, this is what we believe, that our baptism is a means of grace whereby we are spiritually participating with Christ in his death. And the old person is being put to death. That's why Baptists believe in full immersion baptism. It's the act of putting to death that old life in the grave. And so the person's being lowered into the grave. And so what does that mean? It means that we can live life free from the bondage of the old man or the old woman. Since we died with Christ, we are no longer obligated to serve sin. That's exactly what Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you hear how profound that is, brothers and sisters? Because we are in Christ, Because we have been crucified with Christ, because the old person that we once were has been put to death, we are no longer obligated to sin. We will sin, we do sin, but we are not obligated to sin like we once were. We can actually do good, holy, righteous deeds that are pleasing to God because we have been crucified with Christ, even though we must continue to live on this earth in our sinful flesh. And so that means that we are free to live life to the fullest in Christ. We're free in Christ to enjoy all of the benefits of salvation, to enjoy our liberties in Christ, our freedom from sin's dominion. Why? Because we died. And we died so that we might live. And look at what Paul says. The fruit really comes to fruition by our participating. Not just in death. If all we do is die, there is no hope, right? If all Christ did was die, we have no hope. But what do we need? We need a resurrection, And so Paul tells us that not only have we participated in Christ's circumcision and death, signified by our baptism, but also in Christ's resurrection. And in baptism, that's our coming up out of the water, being raised up from the grave. New life. Resurrection. And what is the instrumentality by which this takes place? Paul tells us there in verse 12, through faith in the powerful working of God. The same and one and only God, by the way, that Paul points out, who raised Christ from the dead. So let's put all the pieces together here. We've said a lot in these two verses. And I realize that this does not come perhaps with some disagreement. This is an issue that's been in the church since the beginning. But more than any other passage in the New Testament, these two verses are what keep me a convinced Baptist. A credo-baptist who believes in the necessity of a credible profession of faith before baptizing a person. 
It appears to me in this verse that Paul is saying that water baptism is a sign that the heart has been circumcised as well as a sign of putting to death the old man having sins washed away. And so the sign of the new covenant is not baptism but is the cutting away of the heart of flesh of which water baptism is an outward expression in which the believer spiritually and actively participates with Christ as a means of grace. Now, the argument is made amongst our paedo-baptist friends, our very dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that baptism in a new co- is a new covenant parallel to the old covenant rite of circumcision. But I think if that were the case, Paul's usage of this phrase through faith in verse 12 is problematic. If baptism were the parallel with circumcision, it would not happen through faith because it is not always administered to those who have professed faith. And specifically, I'm speaking of infants. And so the reason this must be through faith is that it represents something very specifically. Not the old covenant external ritual of circumcision, but the new covenant internal spiritual experience of a circumcision done by the Holy Spirit on the heart of the believer. So it appears that through faith in verse 12 is the defining explanation of how we were buried with Christ in baptism and how we are raised with Christ in baptism and it is through faith which requires a conscious affirmation by the believer of the work of God. That being said, We all see through the glass dimly, and when we're together in glory, the Lord will make it more clear, and whoever's right gets to look at the others and wink, and we know what that means. We'll be in heaven, so we can't say, I told you so. We can just wink at each other. We know what that means. But here's here's the important implication of all of this for us, regardless of your position on baptism. Each and every one of us is to live each and every day as those who have died with Christ and the old man and the old woman has been buried with Christ and our sins have been forgiven and we have been raised to new life in Christ that we might walk and live with Him forever and ever. That must be on our minds, that must be in our hearts as believers regularly as we worship, as we pray, as we give thanks to God for all that He is and all that He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is of greatest importance. The second thing Paul shows us in verses 13 and 14 is that if you are in Christ, you are debt-free and rich. Paul reminds us, very similarly to what he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, that as a result of our sin, we are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. Sin is in our spiritual genes. It's our very nature as human beings. It's who we are. And he says we are dead because of it. Now, if you're not a Christian today, this morning you're here, and maybe you're thinking, no, I'm not dead. I'm, I'm right here, and in fact, I'm very much alive. I feel very alive. But what the Bible makes clear is that you are alive in a sense, yes. But you are alive to disobedience. And in being alive to rebellion, you are dead to submission. In being alive to unbelief, you are dead to faith. 
Apart from Christ, you have no living spiritual nature to incline you to do anything for the glory of God. And in reliance on His power and lacking the spiritual nature, you are dead. Dead to righteousness, dead to holiness, dead to obedience, and dead to true faith. Now perhaps you've heard people talk about salvation as though you were out in the middle of the ocean and you're struggling and you're drowning and we need help and we just need a life raft and along comes God through one of his servants and he throws out a rope and all we have to do is grab onto the rope and we'll be saved as he pulls us in. But Paul points, paints a very different picture for us, doesn't he? You're not treading water in the middle of the ocean hoping for a rescue. You're lying dead at the bottom of the ocean floor. There is no response, there is no spiritual stimuli in you whatsoever. And a dead man, a dead woman, doesn't just reach out and grab onto anything. If so, they're not dead. And so spiritually, unless God does a supernatural work, we are rocks toward God. We are insensitive, we are unresponsive to the beauty of God in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be dead in our transgressions and sins. Spiritually speaking, apart from the sovereign work of God, we have no spiritual inclinations whatsoever. And we have a need for a Savior, not only to forgive us of our sins, but to give us actual spiritual life so that our hearts would be inclined to trust Him and obey Him. We can only do what we are by nature. And so the reality is that apart from Christ, we cannot not sin. When we're spiritually dead, we cannot do anything that is not motivated in some way by sin because of our nature. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute. I know people who aren't Christians who do a lot of good deeds all the time. What about them? But what are we doing there? We're determining on our own, apart from God's standard, what is righteous and what is sin, aren't we? Because the Bible says in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. And in Romans 3, 23, we, we learn that the falling short of God's glory is sin. And if there is a pursuit of a good deed apart from seeking uh, the glory of God, it is not really a good deed at all. It is sin. So, for by nature we are spiritually dead, and our so-called good deeds are, as Isaiah says, like polluted garments. In Romans 8, 6 through 9, Paul draws an even more vivid picture of this spiritual deadness. He says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, apart from Christ, we are simply in the flesh. We have a mind set on the flesh, which means we are hostile. We are in rebellion against God. And Paul says, in fact, there is so much hostility, we are so opposed that the flesh cannot submit to God's law in any way, which means that the flesh cannot please God. And so he writes, the mind of the flesh is death. 
We cannot submit to God. We cannot please God. We can only be insubordinate against God. We can only displease God. But, and don't you always love when the Bible says, but, or implies that. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When you come to Christ, you come with a debt that you yourself can never repay. To be burdened with a debt from which you will never be set free is simply too much to comprehend. To owe a debt that you know you can never pay off is psychologically devastating. And if you extend that indebtedness and the penalty that it incurs into eternity, it becomes horrific beyond words. Paul's phrase, record of debt that stood against us, is more helpfully rendered in the New American Standard. It says, which was hostile to us. It was hostile to us. This penalty of debt that cannot be repaid, that we have incurred for having failed to pay it in full, is not that you have a bad credit history. It's not a a repossession of your property. It's not even merely imprisonment. It is death. Why? Because our debt is owed because God's standard is perfection. And whether or not you are in Christ, I have yet to meet a person in this world who has not to answer the question about whether or not they're perfect, that they would admit that they are indeed not perfect. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem because God's standard is perfection according to His law. And you and I, all all of us together, we know that we fall far short of that standard and we know that standard because it's written on our hearts. And the Bible tells us from the moment we are conceived, we are conceived in sin, in rebellion against God's perfect and holy and righteous standard. And as a result of that, we are deserving of death. The moment we are conceived, the debt that we owe is incalculable and it extends on through eternity and we in ourselves can never, ever, ever repay it. But the Bible tells us that the way God forgave us of all of our trespasses was by canceling our indebtedness to Him. He erased it. He blots out our debt. God has wiped clean the slate. I I am He, declares the Lord, who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. But this has to be clear in our minds and in our hearts. God didn't simply take your promissory note and tear it up as if it didn't exist anymore and throw it away. He didn't say, don't worry, we'll just be done with it. No, the infinitely righteous one who is a perfect and holy judge cannot pretend that our indebtedness never existed. Instead, he canceled the promissory note and nailed it to the cross. Some commentators talk about how there was an ancient practice that when criminals were executed by crucifixion, that the list of their crimes would be written out and nailed to the cross along with them. Now, if this is what Paul is referring to, he's saying that all of the accusations against you, 
Every sin that you have ever committed is nailed to the cross of Christ and He is being punished. He's taking the penalty which is the full weight of the wrath of God on your behalf. You see, He doesn't wave a magic wand to shed off our guilt. God's justice and holiness are at stake here, no less so than our eternal destiny is at stake here. That is why the payment must be paid in full. He doesn't just erase it, Christ pays it. We were buried beneath a mountain of spiritual bankruptcy, but God took that signed confession of indebtedness which stood as a perpetual witness against us and He canceled it in the death of Christ. And in return, His perfect record is credited to us and our account is, our, our account is now filled to overfilling, uh, overfilling with a bounty of treasure A bounty of treasure so great and so full that we could never spend it. Even if we spent of Christ's treasure as much as we possibly could, every single day throughout all of eternity, we would never come close to seeing the bottom. And so we are no longer in default of this debt because Jesus paid it all. Whenever, whatever we owed, He paid. Whatever penalty we incurred, He endured. We sing those great words, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Do you know him? Has your debt been paid? It must be paid, and it will be paid either by you or by Christ. No debt of sin will go unpaid. And the Bible gives us two options. Either we ourselves will pay that debt for the rest of eternity, or Christ has paid that debt on our behalf, as I just explained. And the great joy of the gospel is that Christ calls all who will to believe in Him, to come to Him by faith, and that by faith that we can receive that payment on our behalf, trusting in Christ, dying to ourselves, and living in Him that we might know everlasting life, having our debt paid for us, that we need not pay it ourselves. And Paul shows us finally in verse 15 that in all of these things, and all that Christ has done, the triumph of Jesus is over the rulers and authorities of this world. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Paul ends this section by showing us Christ's triumph. And and what Paul primarily has in mind here is deliverance from the bondage of evil powers, the demonic powers that are arrayed against Christ and His church. This is a picture of this this triumphal, triumphal procession through the streets in celebration of a military victory with the conquered rulers and authorities put on display for everyone to see. Plutarch wrote about a three-day triumphal parade that was given to the Roman general, Emilius Paulus. When he returned, he he had captured Macedonia and he came back and so they did a three-day parade. 
and they erected scaffolding so that all the Romans could come and they could climb and everyone could see. And all of Rome came out and they were all dressed in white. It's a three-day parade. You think St. Patrick's Day is crazy around here. Three days. On day one, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statues and the pictures and the colossal images that were taken from the enemy and brought back. On day two, innumerable wagons were, were brought in carrying all the armor of all the Macedonian soldiers. Plutarch described the scene of the armor and the wagons. He said, all was newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposely with the greatest art so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, Cretan targets and, and bucklers and quivers of arrows lay huddled amongst horse bits. And though these were there and appeared, the points of naked swords intermixed with long Macedonian saracens. All these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness that they struck against one another as they were drawn along and made a harsh and alarming noise so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy, they would not be held without dread. You can almost hear the sound of the wagons pulling all of this armor clanking together. And following the wagons of armor came 3,000 more wagons carrying the enemy's silver of 750 vessels followed by more treasure. On day three, all of the new captives were brought in, preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and, and garlands. Next, Macedonian gold, and then the captured king's chariot and his crown and his armor. Then came the king's servants. They were weeping with the hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. And then came all of his children. And then King Perseus himself, clad, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. And then at the end, at the end of it all, is the victorious general. And Plutarch explains, he was seated on the chariot magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his right hand, all the army in like manner with boughs of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, following the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom songs for triumph and the praise of Emilius' deeds. It is a remarkable display from beginning to end. But brothers and sisters, in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father achieved a great victory over the evil powers of this world, making a public spectacle of them all. He wants us to see that even though they still exist in this world, they are defeated. Satan's demons have been sentenced to be in the train of God's victory parade, bound and shackled and Christ high and lifted up that all might see He is the King, He is the conqueror, He is the ruler of all. And so we no longer need fear the outcome of the battle with evil. Christ has conquered, we have conquered, and we will conquer. If you are spiritually dead, if you are without resurrection life, if you are under sin, if you are under guilt, you are empty. And yet Christ invites you to come to Him. 
Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. The spirit of the bride says, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life to enjoy all of the spoils and all of the riches that are Christ's in triumph. They are yours forevermore, and they fill the coffers that can never be spent. Have you been raised with Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for the great reminder of what it means to be raised with Christ, to die to ourselves, and to experience the great joy of new life being alive in him. And so we pray this morning, O oh God, that your word would do its great work in our hearts for the Christian to remind us of the great benefit that is ours because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And for those who are not in Christ, we pray, O oh God, that you would bring them to the end of themselves, that they might see their great need is for redemption, that their debt would be paid by another. And the other who pays their debt on their behalf is Christ alone. Lord, help us to delight in a risen Christ who raises us from the dead, that we might live with him forever and ever, living upon the bounty of treasure that is ours forevermore. We pray you would do all of this in Jesus' powerful and holy name. Amen.